0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you're having some issues, if you're struggling with happiness or achieving your goals, whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling is a convenient, professional, affordable option. Best of all, you don't have to wait in a waiting room or sit in traffic. Everything you share is confidential. You can change therapists, if need be, for free. It's easy. Best of all, you get 10% off of your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com otherppl other PPL. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash other P-P-L. Go get 10% off, BetterHelp.com, slash other P-P-L, all right? Hey, folks, today's episode is brought to you by Ig Publishing, publisher of Lord, The One You Love Is Sick. It's a debut novel in stories by Casey Thornton. Lord, The One You Love Is Sick is a gorgeously written and heartrending work of fiction from an important new voice in the literature of the American South. Publisher's weekly raves, quote, these stories collectively coalesce into a resonant, emotionally searing nexus of hard truths, buried secrets, and emotional pain that readers won't soon forget. Lord the one you love is sick by Casey Thornton, available now from Ig Publishing. I just lost my like and I Hey folks, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name's Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles and it's nice to be with you. This episode goes live on November 4th, 2020. I am recording this on November 3rd. It is 3:42 p.m. in the afternoon in Los Angeles, California on November 3rd, election day 2020. As I say these words, I don't know who won the election. By the time you're listening to this, maybe we do. It's a strange time to be alive. It's been a strange day. I feel like I'm in some sort of, uh, like, narco haze. I'm not on anything. I don't take Xanax or anything like that. I feel a little tired, to be honest. I'm just ready for it to be over. I want to know what's going to happen. I feel like Biden is going to win. I didn't feel 100% that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016. I mean, the numbers were saying, I don't know. You know what I mean. But I'm choosing to be optimistic. So that's where I'm at right now, just so you know. I need to mark this moment. But I won't carry on because by the time you hear it, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be settled. I would imagine. Sebastian Castillo is my guest today. He has a book out on Word West Press. It is called Not I. It's a hybrid work of literature. Is it autobiography? Is it poetry? Is it fiction? Is it all of the above? You be the judge. I had a great time talking with Sebastian. And I'm going to share that conversation with you right now. Here he is, folks. This is Sebastian Castillo. And his new book, once again, is called
1: Not I. I started it, like, three years ago. And uh, at the time, I was, like, teaching a lot. I was teaching, like, five classes at different schools. And um, I don't think it was, like... It consciously came out of you know teaching so much composition but looking back on it 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 must have motivated it somehow you know like um looking at the sort of essential stuff of language every day and correcting these sort of small things um but yeah in terms of the limitations too it's like um i remember when i first started i um I kind of wanted a distraction. You know, I was working on short stories and I was just kind of getting tired of it. And um, I wanted something with like really rigid rules. Um, and in some ways that actually became way more fun to write. Sometimes I feel like constraints... I mean, I think constraints in general are good for art. Yeah, I'm really um, really influenced by the uh, Oilypo Oy- writers. I never know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It, they're mostly French. And I, I think Oilipo is an acronym for... Um, I don't remember exactly what but it's it's basically, you know, all procedural, all constraint-based writing. Um I would say George Perec is probably the most famous of of the group. He um you know, he wrote a whole novel without the letter E. Um like it's <laughs> really wild stuff like that. Um yeah, it really spoke to me.
0: Damn, that's I'm trying to think of even like what you would That must be the most tedious kind of writing ever trying to avoid the letter <laughs> E.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting, too, is that, yeah, it's the most common letter in French, uh, and he originally wrote it in the French, and then it's also, I think, the most common letter in English, and so, you know, his translator pretty much had as much of a, you know, a task at hand when he translated the book, because uh, he also had to avoid the letter E. All right. Yeah, that, yeah that's a, you better get paid extra for that. I, I know,
0: right? Um, so, I was thinking of Edouard Levet too. Just the, oh, Yeah the declarative autobiographical personal though i feel like your book is a little bit more elliptical in some ways than his yours is a little bit more poetic like his feels like confessional am i on the right track
1: uh yeah i actually i totally agree um i remember when i first read that book auto portrait um years ago it was like totally blew me away um and i really loved how as you said, it's kind of these declarative sentences um and you would think that you know I mean they're kind of neutral in quality right emotionally, but it has a bit of like a cumulative effect where you know halfway through you're you know you're like why is this book so depressing <laughs> um but I mean, yeah in terms of difference, I would definitely say that it seems like his has a much more of a confessional bent and I um in some ways, I guess, was trying to like write against that. You know, I mean, there are things that are reflective of, of things that I believe or ways that I behave, but there are a lot of things that, are, that aren't, I guess, that are closer to lies uh, than not. So uh, there is definitely, yeah, uh, an anti-confessionalism at play there.
0: Well, and I also think that there is, I'm trying to think of how to describe it, but I feel like the lines in your book, the reader can fit inside of them whereas with LeVay it's very much him and it, it's his life and his experience and your books you know the the way that it's composed I feel like I don't know I, I could feel like a level of access to each line that was personal to me
1: yeah uh definitely there were there were um well one of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing it was I wanted there to be a mix of of sentences that were totally like quotidian, you know, like I go to the park, like something that anyone could say. Um, and then, you know, clashing against that things that were utterances that were a little bit more like idiosyncratic, strange, um, especially later on in the book where you get to more, um, I don't know, convoluted sentences due to the tenses, um, kind of playing against that, um, yeah yeah okay so what is how do you categorize this book do
0: you categorize it because it is one of those works that resists easy classification Uh, is it poetry is it Uh, autobiography what is it
1: yeah um i don't know i guess i've always been interested in in moving in between forms um and kind of assimilating a lot of different qualities of different genres um, what I found interesting is I, I did a interview for Hobart and, um, and, uh, Nick, uh, the, the person who interviewed it said, uh, he called it a novel and he called the, the, the person speaking the narrator of the novel, which I found very funny because I, um, yeah, I never considered it a novel, but I also don't really know. Um, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it could be poetry. I think there, there are similarities to things like, uh, I remember by Joe Brainerd, which is, kind of a, a book of poetry also kind of not um uh, yeah I, I i'm not i'm not sure i feel like it exists you know somewhere in between those places and that's uh, you know I, I like that i like that it, it has that ambiguity uh, yeah i've been thinking lately about
0: a category of book that is just called book like we don't have <laughs> to call it a novel we don't have to call it poet like it's just the book i don't know call it whatever you want to call it like does that impulse resonate with you
1: yeah that reminds me. Um, I was once uh, teaching a creative writing class, and I showed my students um, one of Dennis Cooper's GIF novels. I don't know if you've ever seen them, um, where it's just a, a collection of GIFs. Like, you know, you just scroll through all of these GIFs, um, and he calls them um, a novel. And, you know, so I showed them to the class, and um, I think it was like a class of freshmen. And uh, one student, I was like, so what do you think? Like, is this a novel? Can we think of this as a novel? And, and one student said, like, who cares? It's just cool. Like, <laughs> That's all that matters to me, um, which I thought was really funny. I've had arguments with
0: people, or not arguments, but I've, like, decided unilaterally that if Andy Warhol were alive today, the gif would be his, like, preferred medium. Oh, yeah.
1: I I could definitely see that. Absolutely. (laughs) Like they
0: feel, you know what I'm saying? Like I I think gifts are really, really interesting and uh, amusing. I I think it's, I don't know. I think there's something to that. And I know Dennis Cooper's work. I've had him on the show before. I have not seen the GIF novel, but I feel like that's exactly the kind of thing he would be doing. And somebody's got to be working in this space. You know, it's kind of on the outer reaches. I guess it would be called avant-garde is that i mean that seems like the space you live in is that how you conceive of yourself in your own work are you are you um like like really do you define yourself as an experimental writer is that your area of interest to try to find new forms or to work in hybrid forms
1: yeah i mean um maybe by accident but i i I, yeah i do think that it's, it's hard for me to sort of sit down and, and just say, like, all right, I'm going to write a story about some, you know, I don't know, some difficult emotional period of my life or whatever. I, that never – I just get so bored of it so quickly that never really animates the writing. Um, for me, it's, yeah, a, a, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, like, formal uh, play and thinking about tradition um, in – the writers that I like, you know, that's, that's always the stuff that I, um, am the most excited by. And I think, I mean, in general, I'm sure this is true for a lot of people, but, um, I feel like, yeah, I only started writing because I liked reading so much, you know, like I felt like writing was a continuation of my reading. Um, and so, because the things I read tend to be in that world, uh, the things I write follow suit, you know?
0: So do you don't like when you talk about writing about, you know, from a place of personal anguish
1: or some difficult period, what bores you about it? Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's, because I feel like inevitably that type of stuff does come up, you know, like it doesn't matter how, um, or at the very least like the the experimental work, if you want to call it that, that I, I love, um, isn't like a totally uh, conceptual exercise, you know. It's not just to do something strange there's also there always has to be something um a bit more i don't know a bit more human in it and so that material those emotions i feel like those things always crop up regardless um of the form you're working in but i think that in terms of um straightforward kinds of let's if we want to say like confessional writing um a part of me feels like you know there's so many books in the world and um I, I kind of guilt that I've always felt as a writer is like you know do should I put another thing in the world you know regardless of if anybody reads it or not like uh it always it feels like there's this this gigantic heap you know this like garbage pile of human human art and existence and um t- to do something that's like I don't know so repeatable feels excessive like I, I feel like uh
0: but it wouldn't it be, know. but wouldn't it be if it was just if it was your specific experience your personal experience how is that repeatable
1: I, you're totally right I mean, I think like um this is definitely like a, pers- a personal hang up because even with you know super experimental work um, yeah it's always coming from a certain tradition of writers and artists who've already done stuff like that, and so um I guess I think of it as um, it's like you want to enter a house through a particular entryway, entry point. You know, like to me, like walking into it's maybe like a pretentious metaphor, but like walking into the the house of of literature, art or whatever, um, through the perspective of of writing um, the way that I was talking about before, like traditional confessional stuff seems like not it's just not as interesting you know I want to I want to enter that world from a different perspective but um yeah it's it's I guess it's a satisfying explanation to myself and maybe not to other people do you feel like the experimental
0: stuff is emotionally easier like to go in
1: straightforward is just too emotionally uncomfortable or is that not a factor I think that's a really um yeah that's a really good way to put it. I've never really thought about it like that before. um I think also too, it's like um, I don't know i guess I was sort of talking about it before, but like um I don't know if if a raw a nerve or an emotion is the is the primary thing that drives my wanting to write something. you know it's always a kind of echo off of something else, usually something that i um, something that I've read, something that I, I admire um, and wanting to sort of like reshape it or play with it in my own way. And um, I, I feel like I've, in the past when I've taught creative writing, I've told students like, um, you know, the best way to, to to get better, just just copy somebody you like, <laughs> just copy a writer you like. And it's it's not going to be as good. But you keep doing that over and over again to different writers. And then eventually you're going to find yourself um, doing something that's exciting to to you. Uh, so, so yeah, I guess in terms of the question of emotion, it's like, it, it's just that that's never the place where I start personally. Yeah. You know, I think
0: that's a really good point that you, we learn through mimicry or uh, copying, like you're saying, you know, like it's uh it's kind of one of these things that can be easy to overlook, but I think to the composition of the book that I just finished and for some reason i was just reading philip roth cuz i feel like i had i felt like i had this gap in my mm-hmm. in my reading i have so many gaps but i get guilty i feel guilty cuz i'm like oh my god i've never read philip roth and <laughs> yeah. then i went through this phase where that was like kind of all i was reading and it helped me i think it just helped me at the level of okay so this is somebody who's considered really skilled at narrative at like putting a narrative together and uh you know strong mind strong voice on the page I don't know what it was you know I it was kind of yeah. unexpected but I don't want to say that I tried to write a Philip Roth novel but I do feel like sometimes even focusing on one or a small set of writers or influences can help you uh or it can help me
1: like voice my own projects does that make totally. sense? totally yeah I mean I think um so I i just been uh working on a novel starting you know i I hope to dedicate the majority of next year to to actually writing it and finishing it but one of the things that i i've been doing is like i have a stack of, of books um that um are are books that i kind of partially want like spiritually want to influence it and so what i've been doing is just like picking one of those books reading a page at random before i write um you know not necessarily copying anything from those books but just kind of um Getting a, a, an energy, a tone, a spirit, something like that from it, and hoping that some of that stuff will, will work its way into what I'm working on. Um, so what, what I've only read goodbye, Columbus. What was your favorite Philip Roth thing?
0: Uh, I'm trying to think I, you know I, I read American Pastoral. that was really strong. I think um, I think that uh, the human stain is really strong. And I think that uh, maybe Sabbath's Theater. Yeah, was, I heard
1: that one's like the really like wild one, right?
0: Yeah, that's what I was just gonna say. I mean, that's like, that's a really crazy book. And I found it, uh, like it was one of those books that I think after I finished it, my opinion of it improved with time, the more that right. I thought about it. But um, those are probably the three that I found most impressive. And I think too, there was something inspiring and interesting to me about the fact that he wrote all of these books after having this like major heart surgery and like Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, he had like a big health scare, kinda like kind of near death. You know, it was definitely one of those sort of uh perspective giving health experiences. And then he had this enormously creative writing period in his like late middle age and into his like senior years which is unusual. So I think there's a part of me that's like how do I stay sharp like that when I'm in my 60s? Right. Like I don't want to be one of these people who gets like old and tired and repetitive or you know. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm always <laughs> looking looking to people who like David Lynch is sort of that way too. You oh, know totally. there's a, there are a lot of examples you could point to but it's like how do you continue to be creatively generative and open
1: well into your older age i remember reading an interview with philip roth a few years ago where he uh they they asked him like what are you reading nowadays and he said "Uh, i don't read fiction anymore it's a total waste of time like i just read history like i I regret having spent so many years reading novels (laughs) it's like i forgot all of them i should have just learned about the world that i actually lived in um which i found very a a part of me didn't know how like tongue-in-cheek that was you know um because Obviously, this guy's dedicated his life to writing fiction, but I found it interesting in terms of, yeah, like if you do dedicate your life to a medium, is there ever a time when you just kind of you kind of say like, all right, I'm, I'm done, I don't know. Well, um, well, I would just say, you know, it's intre- I mean, I, I might have read the same
0: interview. I know that uh, I know that this is the case. He read a ton of really uh, like robust, Histories. And if you've read American Pastoral and The Human Stain and um, even Sabbath Theater, I'm trying to think of the other later books, but you know, if you've read those, you know that they have um, kind of a historical overlay or right. uh, infrastructure. And I think what might have happened is that he like really found his legs creatively once he started to write against american history Mm. and that was just his like that was what lit him up and i i think that's i think that's what he was doing and so i don't know it makes sense to me that he would be like
1: why haven't i been doing this my whole career (laughs) you know it's funny i've always um i've always been interested in writers who do like a ton of historical research before they write uh, a novel or whatever they're writing. Um, uh, because it's, I, it's, it's totally the opposite of how I would ever approach something. Um, like, so there's, there's a writer, say, Ida, uh, Argentine writer who I really love. And I think he kind of, um, I don't know, he has the same sort of thing, uh, in terms of how I approach fiction where somebody was writing a, a book and he set them in, um, in the mountains of some part of the Ukraine and the editor was like, there are no mountains there. Uh, and he said, who cares? It's like fiction. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, but I I also find it sort of similarly interesting when somebody is like, all right, I got to read like 20 books of history. Um, so that I know like the right way that this Roman soldier would tie the shoes on his feet, you know, um, even though obviously like no reader would actually care about that, but that, some for some reason the writer needs that like assurance um that they're doing the past you know some justice
0: yeah i mean i think it's that i think it's also maybe giving some something it gives context for your characters for your fiction you know like you can it helps you maybe it's like a it's like a almost like a laxative or like a a way a point (laughs) it's like a point of access you know maybe it helps just get the creative wheels turning to like start to immerse yourself in the non-fictiony aspects of it but uh i guess whatever works right and i think too that there can be especially if you're writing like really straight historical fiction something lovely about having a framework for your
1: story built in you know yeah and i feel like you could probably you can sort of feel the like uh, authority emanating from the writer, right? When when they have those details straight, um, and it definitely has an effect on you as you read it. Um, I wanted to ask you. So you said you just finished a book. Is this a, a novel? Yeah, yeah, it's a novel, and uh, it's cool. Called... How do you feel about it?
0: It depends on the hour. I mean, I <laughs> I think in general I feel really good about it. I, I'll tell you this: I, I don't feel like I'm ever going to have to rewrite it, which is the first time I've ever felt that. Oh, that's awesome! Uh, and I've tried to write this book like multiple times, and there have been, you know, it's been a huge headache for like a decade, basically. So, oh wow! Um, this time, I feel like, well, this is this is it. I did it, and I can't do this story any better. So, uh, what's it called? Be brief and tell them everything. Oh, nice! So, uh, we'll see. I look forward to reading it. Yeah, it's out on submission. Um, you know, and we'll see what happens with it. But I feel kind of like relieved to have it out of me, you know, right. it's, it's like one of those things. But uh, I'm curious to know about uh, your background. You know, you seem sure. to me like like a, like a real like genuine book person. Uh, just in talking to you briefly here, I feel like you're somebody who like, gr- you know, from from the cradle, like loved books. Is this the case or is it one of these things you came to in adolescence or college?
1: Um, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, I would definitely say your characterization of me is true. It's like one of the main things I do. I mean, especially now that I can't really hang out with friends or go out, you know, Um. like this summer I wasn't working and I just I just read most of the day. Um, but I didn't always have this relationship to reading when I was a kid. I, I hated it Um. mostly because of I don't know if they do this in California, but in In New York State, uh, summer reading was required. So, you know, uh, if you were going from the third grade to the fourth grade, you had to read these like five different books and you'd be tested on it the first week back. And I just resented it so much because it's like summer is this, you know, this time finally I can just do whatever I want uh, play video games, hang out with people, skateboard, whatever. Uh, And uh, I always had these like books hanging over my head. And it's like, yeah, I I just didn't. I didn't really. It wasn't ever anything that I wanted to do, you know, outside of school, and um, I think though that you know, by the time I was in middle school and high school, it was just one of those subjects I was I was decent at, you know. Um, I, you know, I would get assigned books and I would reasonably enjoy them and and be able to write about them, okay. But I would say yeah, it wasn't until college where I became really obsessed, um, and I would say in particular it was when I read uh, Frank O'Hara for the first time, and when I read Roberto Bolaño. um, You know, I went from reading, like, I don't know, 10 books a year to reading, like, 80 books a year, you know. Um, And, uh, yeah, I I, I guess for the last at least 12 years of my life, it's been one of the major things, you know, that I do.
0: What was it about O'Hara and Bolaño that
1: struck you so much? Um, I guess for O'Hara... Before reading him, my relationship to poetry was, I just sort of saw it as this kind of like, I don't know, um, this like relic, right? Like this embalmed thing that people in the past did that had, you know, you studied it out of historical curiosity, but it had no relationship to your life, you know. And then um, I guess when I, when I first read O'Hara, uh, all of his poems seemed so full of joy and casualness. I guess, um, you know, like just, it made me feel like, wow, this is something that I can actually like hold, uh, and feel like there's something there for me. Um, and with Bolaño, I, you know, it's fun. It's, I, have said before, you know, like to friends and stuff that it's probably the book that made me start writing 2666. And, um, I kind of read it like serendipitously. I was in my friend's dorm room in college and he had just come out in English and it's this huge, you know, like 900-page book, and I just like looked at these blurbs that were really emphatic, and I said, "All right, you know, what? I'm going to read this book," uh, just kind of out of nowhere. Uh, and I don't know, it just it, it it was such an intense reading experience. I remember um, when I was in the in the last part of the book, I had maybe like 60 pages left, and it was 2 a.m., and I just stayed up till like five in the morning um, when I finished it. And there was something like. Um, it made me feel like literature could be this collage of all of these worlds of all of these different uh times and and um and interests and commitments and affects and and um it could be kind of messy too Like it could just be this like this collage yeah and so i think that that really excited me and kind of made me want to want to try writing for myself where'd you go to college Uh, I actually went to Manhattan College where I'm currently teaching, which is uh, pretty surreal. I remember I I started teaching there like two years ago, and the first class I taught was like where I took freshman bio, like in 2007, um, which was kind of strange. But um, yeah, I used to, in Philly, I used to teach at like Temple, um, UPenn, a few other schools. And
0: you grew up, you said, in Mount Vernon, north of the Bronx. Yeah.
1: Well, so um, I, I I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. Uh, my mother was American. My father is uh, Venezuelan. And, um, yeah, I was born and raised there until I was eight. And then I moved uh, with my mother to Mount Vernon, which is where she grew up. Um, and I've lived in Mount Vernon, you know not including when I lived in Philadelphia, yeah, ever since then. So, did your parents split up? Yeah, they um well, they just got separated at first and then they finally got a divorce years later, but um they they both said that um getting separated was the best thing they had ever done for their relationship. They <laughs> became like significantly more amicable to each other afterward. Well, you know, that can happen
0: sometimes. I feel I've heard people say that before, especially like co-parenting you get to like have the kid and then pass the kid back you know to the other parent and have a break and um give yourself some time to your to breathe like I've heard I've heard people talk maybe half jokingly about that but there's probably more than a grain of truth to it
1: yeah I mean in my parents case I think it was just um a kind of profound mismatch of personality like my mother was a very uh anxious um you know on top of everything type of person um Whereas my dad is a bit more kind of like laissez-faire or whatever. We'll figure it out when the time comes type of thing. And it just kind of they really clashed um, when it came to like paying bills and that kind of thing. So you grew up the first eight years in Caracas and then you, mm-hmm. you, you know,
0: you, your parents split or separate and you move country. Yeah. So you had not really lived in the United States until then. That had to be a big change.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I had visited for like Christmas uh, before then, um, but it was the the first few months I remember pretty distinctly were strange. I mean, my, my mother's family was here, so I had a kind of you know grandparents and aunts and that kind of thing. Um, but obviously, yeah, no friends at first, and uh, I was put in like the ESL class, and I kind of quickly graduated out of it. I guess because I was more or less um, raised bilingual. Um, it's funny and now I speak English like way better than I speak Spanish. But, um, so yeah, that transition was rough, but, um, you know, I, after a few months I kind of, yeah, I, I made some friends and, uh, it was okay. Yeah. Kids adjust. Like yeah. we just, um, uh, we had
0: somebody living with us. My son has an aide. Uh, he's got some disabilities and she actually moved in with us during COVID. Oh, wow. Well and then she decided to move to Canada and left us a few days ago after living with us for six months and working with us for two years oh wow and I was like dreading it I was like this is my son's best friend and we're losing her and like I was like I was really depressed about it and um I got choked up and you know all these things and right. he's fine <laughs> oh really yeah like uh, I mean they you know they they miss her my kids miss her but like it's my wife and I are having the hard time. We're like, oh, you know, it's, it's funny that children, you know, are the ones who can handle shit. And it's adults who have the problems.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder why that is. I mean, I guess um, maybe i was just thinking about my experience back then. Maybe it's like an attention span thing. Maybe it's like, well, things are different now. You know, uh, you just got to find some other thing to occupy your time and uh, give you satisfaction, you know, even if you don't conceptualize it like that at that age. But. Um. Yeah, maybe kids have a easier time letting go. You know. Do you have any siblings? No, I'm an only child. Oh, okay. And th- when you're um uh, when you moved with your mom to New
0: York, your dad stayed behind in in Venezuela.
1: Yeah, he still uh still lives there.
0: Okay, so but you got you got to see him regularly.
1: Um. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, so I I would visit Venezuela um every summer until I was about like 13 or 14. I haven't been back there since then. Um. And my dad would come to visit, but I haven't seen him in uh eleven years actually, because I still talk to him. We're on great terms. I love him very much but um he he can't enter the country um he was denied a visa once um and then you know uh, he messed up some paperwork and then he was entering the United States again and um they detained him and like they kept him in a room for like thirty six hours and basically said that he's denied a, a entry to the United States. Um, and so uh, this was a number of years ago. So uh, there's a the possibility that, you know, it's expired and you could try again. Um, but yeah, I haven't. I, I, the plan is to once COVID is over or whatever over means um, to, to meet up in Europe. My uncle, his, his brother lives um, in Spain. And so, you know, I have a little family reunion when the time comes. Damn.
0: So, like, he just because he's messed up some paperwork, like honest mistake, they detain him and he can't come into the United
1: States. Well, because what happened is um, he got uh, Italian citizenship through his grandfather on his father's side, and he was um, denied a visa as a Venezuelan, and then on some paperwork or something was asked if he's ever been denied a visa, uh, like, and he thought it was in relation to his now new Italian passport, and so he said no and when he got off the plane there was literally like three guys there waiting for him and uh you know say like why did you lie to us you know and he said it was like a literally like good cop bad cop routine where like one one guy would come to the room yell at him for like 10 minutes um he would leave then another person would be like oh you know like you really shouldn't lie to us blah 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 but um yeah he said the experience was terrible damn okay yeah All right.
0: And so uh, you grow up north of uh, the city. Did you go into New York? Like when you live in Mount Vernon, is your mom taking you into the city to museums and stuff? Did you have that kind of like
1: childhood experience of of Manhattan? Yeah, she uh, she worked in Manhattan um, at a dance company. Both of my parents uh, were dancers. Um, And she, uh, so she commuted every day to uh, the Upper West Side. And um yeah I, you know it's funny when you when you're a kid like I'm I'm thinking about like you know when I was in elementary school I just like I wasn't interested I just wanted to like hang out with my friends and play video games or whatever uh I think it, yeah when I was a teenager and you know had a growing interest in art and going to like see bands and stuff like that I, I started going to the city a lot more wait so both your parents are dancers yeah they were um that's how they met they're both ballet dancers um and my my dad kind of switched to doing like contemporary dance and once my mom retired she became like the rehearsal director for a dance company
0: okay i can't really see you you got a coat on but i'm like are you are you a <laughs> dancer do you have any dancing genes uh,
1: no i mean i like i like dancing like um you know just like for fun but not and <laughs> i don't think i have the uh the capacity for it um yeah, I mean, it's funny. So I, when I was a kid, I would go to see my my uh, my mom's performances, uh, my dance performances, and I remember being completely bored by it, but I loved the music. Like a lot of the times, I would just kind of close my eyes and just listen to the music. And um, I think, I mean, music was really my first, uh, you know, love before writing. Like I I, uh, I really got into playing music and listening to it when I was, uh, you know young teenager and so if there was any effect it had on me i think it was that it was musical i think didn't i use some of your music on the, this show for a while yeah i remember because like years ago you asked for uh interstitial music and so i sent you like instrumental versions of music i had recorded and i i, I didn't know if you ever did anything with it and i was listening to um and the episode where you interview joey grantham And, uh, at the end of it, I like hear my own music. I was like, Whoa, you have (laughs) a, you have a Joey Grantham aesthetic. You have like the same kind
0: of like incredible head of hair and the mustache (laughs) and the glasses.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so it's funny. Um, I just did a reading for, for the book not I, and asked a bunch of people to, to read along with me. Um, and I realized out of the six readers, three of them, guys with mustaches which is not planned is this a thing do you think like a, I feel like young
0: male writers might with good hair might be growing <laughs> mustaches and wearing glasses as a kind of a branding exercise
1: uh you know it's entirely possible uh <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> um so I
0: was gonna say like you said you were bored by ballet as a kid That's not something I ever have gotten into or understand, but I do appreciate the physical skill required, like the strength and um, hard work that these professional, you know, ballet dancers uh, have to have, you know, or have to have to put into it. Like it's intense.
1: It's so physically, I mean, like physically, psychologically, and artistically demanding. Um, my mom would tell me, you know, a story because she she started, she went to like a, a ballet high school in New York, and um, as soon as she was eighteen, she joined a ballet company, and so and she did it her whole life. Um, and I mean, especially back then, they they had incredibly, uh, you know, pro- like pro- ethically problematic and cruel practices, like. They would make the ballerinas like weigh in at the end of the week, and like if you were even a pound heavier, they would deduct money from your paycheck. I mean, stuff that would be totally illegal today, but um, also just things like, you know, one night she she had a fall on stage, and she went to the doctor, and uh, she was pretty sure she had broken her foot, and the doctor said, uh, yeah, when did you break your foot the first time? And she said, like, what are you talking about? And, And she had already broken her foot, but because they're trained to sort of persevere, she just just went on with it you know it never went to the doctor never you know thought about it twice um so yeah really really brutal okay see that's what i that i think that's
0: kind of what i like about it or am fascinated you know that's what i find fascinating is how when you say ballet i think a lot of people reflexively think like oh that's kind of this like frou-frou like <laughs> yeah, feet." Yeah. but it's actually like savage
1: <laughs> totally uh, I mean you have to pick up a person like entirely ob- above your head and, and like make it look good you know
0: <laughs> and like physically so you like your parents must be like ripped this is the other thing like the other kind of shallow uh, appreciation I have for it I'm always like man I wish I had like a ballet like these male ballerinas I'm like they're so fit you know so I can feel like a sense of envy was your
1: dad like ripped growing up yeah it's, it's funny anytime I see a picture of my parents when they're like uh my dad was like in his late 20s my mom was in her early 30s and it's like Jesus Christ, they (laughs) look like models, you know, like they're an incredible, I mean, yeah, their profession is to exercise essentially. Um, Yeah. But you never got into it? No, um, no. Yeah, I mean, I like dancing. I love music, um, but not not in any formal capacity, you know. And you play music? Yeah, yeah. I've been playing uh, guitar since I was 13. You still do it? Yeah, I mean... um, not as much uh, in the last few years. Um, I It's one of those things where maybe this is just like a... I mean, I'm only 32, but it's one of those things like getting older where things that used to be very exciting to you, um, like you can acknowledge that they're interesting still, but you just don't feel that kind of that thing in your heart. Um, and so a lot of guitar-based music, I just kind of lately have been, been a little ambivalent about it. And so... I've been trying to teach myself the piano, um, which has been really difficult. But um, yeah, I still, I still, I still tinker, take away the guitar, definitely. Can you sing? Uh, I've tried, but <laughs> I'm not very good at it. Um, I think, yeah, the, the last thing I recorded, just like five years ago, I, I had to use autotune just because I like I couldn't, you know, I would hit the notes right half of the time, and the other half I, I, um, I didn't. I, I actually. Um maybe 3 years ago or so I took vocal lessons for about a month with a, an opera singer uh not to sing opera but just to you know to work on my chops and uh yeah it's really challenging it really comes from like your your body it doesn't really come from your throat um and I, I stopped because I, I never practiced I I lived with roommates at the time and like <laughs> you know it's kind of to hear some guy going like la, 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 la the next room over is not uh, it wasn't something I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think it it's not something that I normally consider, this idea that you can train to be a better singer. I always feel like it's something you're born with, which I guess to some extent is true. But a guy like me, like I'm not totally tone deaf, but I'm not a good singer. And Yeah, I, I would I,
1: say I'm in the same place totally.
0: Yeah, I feel like somebody like me, if I took – voice lessons consistently for a period of years I could probably get considerably better
1: totally um, I think the big the big hurdle for me was you know when you play a, an instrument like you can physically see the note right like you can see okay this is this is a G uh, or whatever whereas it's totally you know you are the note <laughs> it's totally hidden from you you can't really you're just gonna have to hope and pray or I guess get good enough eventually where you just know you know you can sing that G or, or whatever note you're trying to sing. It'd be so great to be like musically gifted and to be like a, <laughs> just a god. I, I mean it, I I always feel jealous of like as you describe people who just are so good at singing naturally. It's like that one thing I wish I was born with.
0: I probably agree. I just think <laughs> but I also think there's something or there can be, there can often be something ridiculous about people doing rock music past a certain age. And mm-hmm. I don't want to be ageist. I'm not trying to be, you know, ridiculous about it. But it's just something that feels very much of a piece with youth. And there are, I think, rock musicians who do age well. Um I think a lot about like aging and the arts in general. Like how do you do it in a way that's like graceful and interesting and you know, how do you remain vital? But you know, there can be something a little ridiculous to me about seeing like a 65 year old
1: man in leather pants, like dancing around. You know? Right. <laughs> you know? Well, I guess, you know, cause it's like the thing that I love about that music is that it's really silly, right? It's like, <laughs> it's supposed to be juvenile. It's like, it's filled with this, 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 passion, this vitriol, you know, but it's, um, it's, you know, shalala, I love you. Like that's the, <laughs> that's the depth of, of most of it. And I, I don't mean that in a, critical way that's what I love about it that it's like it's this this uh shallow depth that's that's amazing to be inside of and so it yeah it does it it is funny when it's like a a grown-ass adult like singing that kind of thing but at the same time it's like there's examples uh that that band guided by voices you know they're all uh older guys and I, I love that band they still sound great and they make great music but um yeah I feel like yeah maybe there are more stayed arts, like like literature and, and film, where it's more common to see, um, you know, somebody continuing to work for decades. Yeah, I think so. I think a
0: lot of it's about intake. I think you have to keep, like if you're a musician, you have to keep wide open and keep listening to what's new and keep listening to what you love and finding new things and staying curious. And I think the same, yeah. the same is true for any art, really. Like if you close yourself off, Or decide that you're over it, you know. Complete, you know. You can wither on the vine. I think in order to stay vital, you have to,
1: you have to ingest. Yeah, I, I, you know, what you're saying reminds me of. uh, I read this like years ago, and like it was like Rolling Stone or something. This must have been like 2003 or 2004. uh, You know, when I like used to subscribe to the magazine, I was reading an interview with uh, the guitarist from AC/DC, and. The interviewer was like, "So, do you like any new acts today?" And he said, "Like, I, I haven't listened to a new song since 1970, <laughs> and you like, haven't, and you haven't made it
0: an interesting <laughs> song since 1980."
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's I guess it, it's funny in his case because it's like, yeah, all, all of their songs have a really similar quality and have had that quality since you know, yeah, 1980. Um, but yeah, and on the other end of the spectrum, there's someone like uh, Dennis Cooper, who I mentioned before. I don't know if, if you ever looked at his blog. Yeah, He's yeah. constantly reading new stuff. Um, you know, it's it's really impressive his his dedication to to being like tapped into the world of of literature and what's what, what people are doing.
0: But but I think
1: more specifically, what people
0: are doing mm-hmm. at this like edge, you know, he mm-hmm. seems to be like the leading edge or the outer edge or however you want to characterize it. I feel like he very much lives in that experimental space and keeps keeps himself tuned into it and open to it and champions it
1: yeah and i feel like that's what keeps his work so i mean he's, so i think he has a new novel coming out which i'm really looking forward to but even his last one um it still feels like so so unique and fresh and um and all of his books you know from the 80s to, to now all felt like really vital to me and he's one of your faves, like, what, like who? Yeah, I haven't, I, I haven't read him in a long time, but there was a period where I, I was just like obsessed, and I read everything he wrote.
0: Who are some others? I mean, you said Bolano, you said O'Hara, like, give me some other writers who have had a
1: big impact on you. Um, all right, let me think. Um, I should have prepared for this question because I'm probably going to forget everything. Um, so, I would say, um, I, I, I love a lot of poetry. Uh, John Ashbery. Alice Notley. Um, uh, in terms of contemporary writers, uh, I really love the work of Jesse Ball. I don't know if you've ever read him. Um, there's something kind of anachronistic in his work. It, it reads like, in, in a good way, like something you'd read in the 19th century, um, but has this really kind of strange, strange quality. Um, I'm trying to think of, I mean, there's like, I I read so much and it's it's like, there's so many books that I like, but I'm totally blanking now. Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stop it there. I can't, I can't think of anybody else. And how have you, I'm curious to
0: know, uh, when I talk to anybody these days, how they have weathered the past year or, you know, whatever it is, nine months of, uh, of covid and quarantine you mentioned that you've been teaching in this mm-hmm. be- beautifully arranged room that you're in right now uh, this yeah. very orderly pristine uh like room but uh, like has it changed your writing habits reading habits you know have you found yourself uh depressed or sluggish or have you found it actually sort of nice because it limits your options
1: <laughs> yeah uh i think all of that when it first started i um I was kind of fine with it I mean obviously it was really scary and um, depressing that I couldn't see my friends I missed them but in terms of like my daily habits I I, especially this summer you know it's like every day I'd wake up I'd read for a while I'd exercise I'd write go for a walk you know Um, it was it was fine I think yeah at at some point um, there was a bit of a breaking point where I just sort of felt like I I was living in like a dream or something and today's weather uh has made me think about how it's it's really kind of cold rainy overcast how uh the winter is probably going to be rough right um you know at least in the summer it's like i could walk around outside um and enjoy the weather but uh i guess yeah we'll see I, i i've been doing okay teaching online has been a little awkward it's really not ideal but um it's better than anything you know or than you know than not doing it obviously yeah. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like the winter is going to be a, a, a
0: big test. I don't think it's going to go well.
1: But you, you're in LA, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think here it's obviously easier because you can still get outside. I'm thinking of right. people who have to be in indoor environments and yeah. like what's going to happen to the contag you know, to the contagiousness or the, the, the volume of, uh, of infected people, but it, did you ever get it? I know New York, the area like was kind of the hardest hit early on. Like a lot of people got it and had it and were through it before they even realized they had it.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I've, I've, I was extremely careful, um, uh, cause I, I'm immunocompromised. And so I, I like, um, I would go out maybe like once a week to get groceries. Um, but other than that, I just like, I just didn't leave, uh, or, you know, I would take a walk around my block, but um, always in the mask and whatever else. So I, yeah, I got lucky; I never got it. But uh, yeah, I know plenty of people who have had it. Um, some pretty badly. Thankfully, no one has died. But um, others, yeah, they just sort of couldn't taste anything for for two weeks. Um, so r- real kind of crazy um, spectrum. What you got, you got asthma or something? No, I got Crohn's, uh, and so I take um, an amu- immunosuppressant uh, to handle the Crohn's. And so, you know, the medicine makes me, uh, immunocompromised, Got it. which is, yeah.
0: Uh, and you talk about your, you know, how big of a reader you are. You're reading like 80 books a year. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I write them down, um, some years less than others, like one year, two years ago, maybe three years ago, I was teaching so much and I think I, uh, you know, read like 50 books or something. But, um, last year I finally, uh, I've always wanted to read 100 books in a year, and I finally did it. Uh, I kind of cheated though because you know it was like December 20th, and I had maybe five books to go. So I was like, oh, let me read these five poetry collections. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna say, how
0: many of these are poetry collections?
1: You read them in a day? Uh, yeah, m- most of them I would say are, are fiction. Like, yeah, 60% fiction, 30% poetry, and then like philosophy or politics, history, that kind of thing. Do you have an idea for what kind of career you want to
0: have? Do you have a vision for such a thing, or is it kind of you make it up on a daily basis?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just wanna, I just wanna write the books that excite me, and you know, hopefully find somebody to publish them. I don't, I don't really have any grand aspirations, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's enough, right? Because I, I was thinking about, I forget who I was talking to about this, but you know, there's like a, this idea that you should try to. Try to write that novel that has, like even if you're an experimental writer. Try to have that novel that has like some, some kind of um, commercial appeal, so that you could sell it to Vintage or whomever, you know. And then it doesn't sell at all, and then nobody wants to publish your, your stuff again. So you're back to where you started. So, I don't know. You know, it's like one of those things that, like, I, not overthinking it, just uh, taking a project, project at a time. Yeah, it's so
0: it's so tricky. I've been thinking about this because I've got this book out on submission and it's like, well, what is marketable or saleable? And these people who, you know, I guess there are some people who write just commercial fiction. They write stories and, you know, genre uh, usually. And it's very clear, you know, it's like a mystery or it's a murder story or true crime or horror or whatever it is. But I feel like in literary fiction, it's just so uh hard to game game it out you like certain books will become runaway bestsellers, and you're like really like uh, you know I, I don't know how you could possibly predict it and i yeah, I, I guess yeah. I wonder at the people I wonder sometimes about writers who seem to have an instinct or something you know for for writing stories that resonate in a literary fiction sense, and then I also in the modern context will sometimes think like, well, you know, maybe they have like a big social media following and I'm like, is that what's driving this? Like not only in terms of book sales, but also in terms of like, is that what publishers are looking at these days? They just want you to have like a
1: Twitter following or something. Yeah, I guess cause you do the PR work <laughs> like for them to some degree. Um, but yeah, I've, I've thought about that too. Um, I don't know. Have you read any of the Sally Rooney books?
0: No, I mean a little bit of uh, was it normal people?
1: Yeah, I think I, I, I like both of them uh, a lot. I think she's a great writer, but um, she's younger than me. I think she's like twenty nine. I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's like funny to think about like how yeah how did that happen? How did um, you know? I mean, I think her novels deserve that recognition because I, or at least I, I like them a lot. Um, but but it's it's interesting to think like you know that she's writing in a certain genre of literary fiction, and and I've seen. That kind of writing elsewhere and i've seen that writing also just not have really nearly as much popularity so um it does seem like yeah maybe like right place right time type of thing i don't know yeah i mean no that's that's actually like
0: closer to the point that i was trying to make too is that like there can be books that are very similar not necessarily in a one-for-one way but they're working in the same space right with what to you might feel like a similar level of um Uh, What quality you know the writing is really good in both cases but one of the books will be resonating with a huge readership and the other one not so much and I think doing this show has brought that home to me over and over again that you can be talking to a writer who is ridiculously gifted and has written a terrific book and they'll be lucky to find 5,000 readers you know and then you could be talking to somebody who's gifted and has written a very similar book or a book that works in the same area and you know a million people go crazy over it and i guess the big question is like why like what is it that makes the difference is it a pr thing is it a social media thing is it something buried in the text somehow some energy i don't
1: know what it is i don't think anybody does yeah. I think some of it has to be marketing, right? Like um I recently read a book, uh oh, so here's another writer, quite like a lot. Um it was called Thanks by Pablo Cachadian. Uh he's uh from Argentina. Uh, totally like bonkers, batshit crazy, surreal novel, like amazing. I thought it was incredible. Um and the the publisher just like didn't um I mean literature and translation already has such a small market, but um the publisher I don't just didn't do any marketing and so Uh, You know, it's like I haven't seen anybody. Um, I the only reason I read it is because a friend of mine um, really likes him, recommended it. Uh, But otherwise, like yeah, you know. And then you have someone like to you know, like Bolano, who we mentioned earlier. You know, he like blew up um, after he died. But um, you know, it's like yeah, how does how does uh, (laughs) does that market work? I don't know. How did Bolano
0: become such a a big deal after he died? I'm wondering what it was. Is there is there anything we can point to?
1: I think there's, like, the sort of traditional, like, romance of the artist who's gone, you know, who, you know, I think his last book, he, like, famously was sort of, like, writing against the clock. Like, he knew he was going to die, um, or at least thought that the chances of survival were slim. Um, and, yeah, I think that that, you know, that was a part of it. I, I also th- feel like, especially in English language uh, literature... It's like every every few years, they pick some Spanish language writer who you know is like representative of everything, and like you know that, that's what happens with, I think that's what happened with Bolaño. um and you know some people would say like oh his writing is magical realist, and it's like I I don't think so at all, but it's because it maybe a lot of English language readers don't have a point of contact other than you know uh, Garcia Marquez or whomever. Um, It does make it seem like there's just like some board of directors. They're like, okay, uh, now it's this this writer's turn to be uh, the the people that people read, you know, or the book that people read.
0: Well, I know, I like that's that's really true, and I feel like there are other contexts in the culture where you could you could say similar things. It almost feels like there's only uh, like there's a finite amount of space for certain cultural roles, like for example, uh, leading man. In mm-hmm. how, like how many leading men, like major leading men actors, can the culture hold at any given time? I mean, like I'm totally just theor- i am totally just theorizing here, but it just well, doesn't—it yeah, I mean, doesn't feel like it's infinite. It feels like there can only be like twelve of them or something, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the supply of like super hot, like jacked guys is you know is is a lot in the world, but you know we can only have six of them be famous at a time.
0: Yeah, and so it's like for the <laughs> like the the major like latino like writer, like the voice of like right. latino literature especially in America, which is so like ethnocentric and everything. Probably like mm-hmm. only can handle like somehow mentally like one at a time or something, but it's ridiculous. Um
1: one thing one thing that I appreciated, um I felt like after he got big, uh it sort of created a um I don't know, like there was all of a sudden a lot more writers from spanish being translated into english and really good writers like alejandro Zambra is a favorite of mine um and yeah i feel like maybe there was a push like oh there are people who are interested in, in this stuff yeah i think it's one of the things i scold myself
0: for and i always enjoy it whenever i do it is reading outside of my country and it mm-hmm. sounds like you do a pretty good job of this you read a lot of books in translation or a lot of books from um you know, foreign writers. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Is that the majority of what you read? Um, I would say, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, maybe like at least in terms of fiction, um, at least fifty percent of it. Um, yeah, like my favorite presses are like places like New Directions, um, Dalky Archive. Uh, yeah, places that that put out a lot of translation. I mean, there's just so much amazing work. You know, um, I remember when I. I remember when I was in a, when I was in the MFA program, um, I had like a, I don't know, a class meeting and one of the teachers said like, I should push myself to read more work that is only is written in English in order to like have a sense for the sentence. And yeah, it just struck me. as kind of strange to like assume that all the best literature is the one that happened to be written in your native language, you know?
0: Yeah. I, I kind of feel like,
1: I mean, you, you tell me you, you,
0: you've read more, um, you know, international fiction or whatever, international literature than I probably have over the past several years. But, um, like, what does it teach you or what have you learned about American literature or how you want to approach literature from reading um, other cultures? Like, and what are they doing? Or can you point to things that are happening and say, you know, Argentinian or South American literature or European literature or Spanish literature, whatever it is, like, can you locate like artistic movements or i don't know tendencies that you see in these books that you find lacking in american literature or would like to incorporate into your own literary project
1: yeah i mean i think the biggest thing for me is that it shows you that the um and here i'm talking about the kind of generic american um you know literary fiction right like the like new yorker style iowa fiction mfa which i know is an unfair characterization but um you know the concerns of that style of writing that you know it's like this um this obsession with craft um uh, with this obsession you know it's like this beautifully written story about like a guy who's divorced uh who goes on a cruise for a weekend or whatever (laughs) you know and there's this kind of um yeah, this, I don't know, this kind of unquestioned, like, middle class lyricism to it, um, that yeah, maybe it's not so much the case anymore, but for, for at least I feel a, a long time was sort of exalted as a, a platonic ideal of, of literary fiction. Um, when you read stuff outside of the U.S., I guess you, you see, like, those concerns just like don't exist. Um, and instead, there's, I don't know, there's a lot more playfulness. I mean, you can't generalize, but, um, but there is, you know, you just you read sentences that you think you wouldn't read um, from a you know traditional American literary fiction writer. Um, you also see a lot more sort of play and freedom. Uh, in, in, and I'm talking here about all the authors that I was just mentioning, like Cesarita, Alejandro Zambra. Um, yeah, there's just like a, a playfulness and an openness to what literature uh, can do that I, I personally just yeah really appreciate. Um, it feels it feels so much more freeing yeah i was going to say it's like oh i'm not bound
0: to new yorker style fiction like you can do other right. things here but i think maybe there are people out there who are thinking like oh, how do i get published if i'm working too avant-garde mm-hmm. how am i going to find readers you guess i guess that has to be of um lesser importance you know they're there might not be, and may, but the thing is, you know, there's always an exception to these these quote unquote rules. But it's like, you know, the literary fiction market is so small it seems to begin with, or it's or it's like a, you know, there's a million people fighting over one relatively small pie, and then you start to get into avant garde modes, and I think you do have to be willing to accept that there's going to be kind of like a micro audience.
1: Well, that. you know, it's funny. Earlier, you said like, uh, you know, a, a writer might only have five thousand readers, and I was like, whoa, that's like, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> crazy. <beyond what> I, <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: but I'm thinking of something in a more traditional mode, right? Of course, yeah, you yeah. know, like a really, I don't know. I could I can go back through the list of interviews I've done where I've talked to somebody um, and just been like, this person deserves. I think that's kind of the the motivation for this entire project and maybe like most of my or a large part of my professional life is just this like I get very confused over why writers aren't celebrated more mm. uh, it just bums me out it's like these are uh to me they're like major artists and to the culture
1: they're like afterthoughts <laughs> yeah you yeah. know it's funny you mentioned why you started this um you know, I've been listening to this, po- this podcast since the beginning. I think I, I was, is it, it Blake Butler was like the first guest? Um, one of or, them, one of them. Yeah, yeah. And so um, it's it's funny to hear you talk about it that because that's, that's the reason why I remember liking the podcast because it felt like it was it was uh, situated in that, that space. Like giving these these writers who might not have a, a gigantic following the room to talk about what it, why it is they do what they want to do. Um Oh, I think Blake Butler is a great example of someone who, you know, he's, he writes really challenging, really beautiful uh, novels, but uh, seems to, you know, have a, have a following, you know, have success.
0: Yeah, no, he's working in, like, he's kind of been able to cross over into mainstream publishing, you know, mainstream, he's found a way to get published by a big press in New York, but he's working in the avant-garde, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say, or that might be you know kind of a a more experimental mode it's a hard it's a hard place to succeed you know getting somebody to kind of back you but he's really uh really gifted yeah absolutely so um i guess like a place to leave it is like are you working on you said you're working on a novel that you want to finish next year is that right
1: yeah so um i'm about like 90 percent done with a short story collection uh these are short stories that i've written you know over the past like five years or so um and i feel like a lot of them work well together so um hopefully before the end of this year i want to finish that and then yeah next year i want to i want to work on a novel it'll, it'll be my third novel attempt uh it's quite it's quite difficult i found is the story collection flash fiction or is it um yeah i mean i would say it's like There's some stories that are, you know, maybe in like the three thousand word range, but there are a ton that are, yeah, like a paragraph long, two paragraphs.
0: And then the novel is what? Can can you describe it? Give us. Um,
1: it's. I think it's too early, but, um, yeah, it's. Um, I, 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 I'm still interested in working in a kind of fragmentary mode, um, but kind of putting that together in the space of a book. So, that's that's where I'm at with it right now. All right. That's, that's kind of yeah. cryptic. That's kind of uh, <laughs> mysterious.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, it's great to talk with you. I didn't realize you'd been listening to this show for that long. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And uh, congratulations on the new book. Best of luck on the story collection and uh, this mysterious novel that you're working <laughs> on. Thanks a lot. All right. There you go, folks. That is Sebastian Castillo. His new book is called Not I it is available from word west press you can follow sebastian on twitter his handle is at bartleby taco at bartleby taco sebastian castillo the book one more time is called not i go get your copy immediately this program is offered freely every single episode of the Other People Podcast. Almost 700 episodes. Come on. They're all available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you listen regularly and you have the means, throw a couple of bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash pod. If you have something to say to me, if you want to uh, send in a photo of where you listen and participate in that whole thing... Uh, You know Listeners do that They send me photos Of where they are In space When they're listening Are you in your car Are you in a field Are you in a forest Are you under a table Where are you Take a photo You can email me My address is Letters at OtherPPL.com You can also get Other people gear Do you want a t-shirt Do you want a sweatshirt Do you want a tank top Just go to the Other people website OtherPPL.com Click on the t-shirt In the left sidebar Get some apparel It's very uh, Fashionable This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available wherever apps are available. It too is free. It's a free app, it's a good app. Get the app. I've got Andrew Weatherhead in the pipeline. He's coming up soon. I don't know if I'm gonna do a post mortem on the election. I did one in twenty sixteen. Maybe I will. I'll see how the mood strikes me if I'm up for that. Maybe Sunday. I don't know. I don't know. I gotta see how this goes. I feel good, but I could feel bad. I could feel very bad, or I could feel very good. Nobody knows. I don't know. You know, maybe. By the time you're listening to this, you could know. Right now, I don't know. You're catching me in this moment of limbo. America hanging in the balance. Existential election 2020. He's totally got this, dude.